This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. You said something interesting, and this this is running off of that during our 12 days of Christmas thing. We have a case for today, but I wanted to talk about a, a different thing. Uh, I got this article, and the article is from Jax Miller, and I don't know if you know who that is, but that's the author who wrote the book on Gloria Bible and Ashley Freeman, out the two girls that went missing during the fire. Right. Yeah, I know who they are. Uh, so she wrote this for Oxygen's True Crime uh, website, and you you made a comment about it as it went by, and that was that people who were headline sifters. How did you how did you say it? Oh, um, is that that case? No, no, it's not that case. It's a different case. She just wrote about it. <laughs> yeah, I said that it's unfortunate that the headline skimmers will think that the genetic genealogy part was overturned. Yeah, and that was that comes from the we've learned that well, look, a the lot he- of the headline is first man convicted of murder on genetic genealogy evidence has verdict overturned. That's the headline. And And this is in reference to William Earl uh, Talbot, the second's case. Correct. And the way that the headline reads, actually, like, I know it was just sort of in passing, but my heart sank because I was like, oh, no, right? Because I've been so excited about all this new science coming forward and solving all these cases. And the way that headline reads, it makes it seem, at least in my opinion, that the genetic genealogy evidence had something to do with the verdict being overturned. Does it not? Yeah, no, it reads like that uh, to grab your attention. But it turns out that that has nothing to do with what's happening. No, the reason that it was overturned is because the a juror during the initial questioning, like as they were picking the jurors, she had, well, I believe it's a she, um, the jurors said that they uh, might be partial and that they had had some experiences that perhaps uh, would lead them to not being able to be completely objective in this case and finding, you know, a verdict against or for the defendant. And so basically it was jury bias. Uh, The Court of Appeals, uh, the Washington State Appeals Court, they overturned both first degree murder convictions based on the fact that there was enough evidence in the record that a particular juror who ended up being a deliberating juror, meaning that they uh, were one of the final jurors that decided the verdict, uh, they shouldn't have, they should have been dismissed based based on whatever was in the record and the questions that they had. It, you know, that's always such an interesting um, thing to me. because a Dilemma? <laughs> well, I mean, 
it, it just seems odd. Now, I didn't really, I looked at what you sent me and <laughs> I really did sort of glean from it that like, wow, now people are going to think that it's, uh, you know, genetic genealogy is not what it really is because you've got this first uh, case being overturned, but it had nothing to do with the genetic genealogy evidence. And I'm actually not entirely certain that the evidence wasn't stipulated to to begin with in that case. So I, that that's interesting. That's something I would have to like look into. But I believe at first they were very concerned how the how the evidence would be received because of the way that it came to light, right? right. Um, but it ended up being like uh, not a big deal. And they basically stipulated to the fact that the evidence was his and that the evidence was found uh, close to, I believe it was the female victim. But uh, I think they argued it could have gotten there a different way or something like that. Um, anyway, so it, you know, why didn't they remove the juror to begin with? And uh, I don't know what other people's experiences are. It's not, it doesn't seem like it's something a lot of people talk about, but it seems like the jury phase, like picking the jurors and like, you know, deciding who's going to sit for the jury, uh, not a whole lot goes into it. <laughs> well, <laughs> what I've seen. So this is what Jack says. Uh, I'll just read a little bit of it out just so people understand what case it was and sort of some of what you're talking about. The subtitle, so the title of the article from December 8th, 2021 is first man convicted of murder on genetic genealogy evidence has verdict overturned. And the subtitle is a little bit about the case. William Earl Talbot II was convicted of brutally murdering a Canadian couple in 1987 in a case that marked a pivotal, pivotal point in the use of genetic genealogy to solve cold cases. His conviction was overturned on appeal because of jury bias. Article goes on to say that William Earl Talbot II was convicted of killing 20-year-old Jay Cook and 18-year-old Tanya Van Kylenberg in 1987 while the Canadian high school sweethearts visited Seattle. This was previously reported that Talbot was arrested in 2018. His arrest helped set the bar for genetic genealogy, a science that has since boomed and redefined criminal investigations around the world, and that references to a 60 Minutes report. On Monday, a Washington State appeals court overturned both of Talbot's first-degree murder convictions on the grounds of juror bias. At the start of jury selection for the original trial, a juror was picked for further questioning when she expressed she might be partial to the evidence potentially presented at trial. The woman who was not named cited past traumatic experiences and her role as a new mother for reasons that she felt she could not be objective. The defendant's motion to remove the juror from the panel was initially denied. In his latest appeal, Talbot argued that his constitutional right to an impartial jury was violated, and the Court of Appeals has currently ruled in his favor. After the juror's clear, repeated expressions of actual bias as to the precise nature of the allegations at the heart of this trial and the evidence which would be introduced, we cannot conclude that juror number 40 was sufficiently rehabilitated such that Talbot was provided a fair and impartial jury. The court's ruling included transcripts and portions of voir dire, which is jury selection, where the juror uh, referenced growing up in a violent household. 
I don't know how I would feel being shown evidence of something that could bring up memories that I have worked hard to get rid of, said the juror. I also have a daughter, and I think that might also play a part in how I might feel. If there was some action taken against a, a, towards a young woman, I might take that personally and not be able to be impartial. Jurors heard the violent and gruesome details behind the murders for which Talbot was accused. According to court records, the victims left Victoria, British Columbia, on November 18, 1987, to retrieve furnace parts in Seattle for Cook's father. Now, this is Jay Cook and Tanya Van Cullenberg, but I'm going to call him Jay and Tanya. On November 24th, Tanya's body was discovered on a steep embankment in, in a rural area of Skagit County. Her pants were removed, her bra was pulled above her breast, and someone had beaten her and shot her in the back of the head at close range. The following day, the couple's van was found with blood evidence, and Tanya's missing pants were inside. On November 26, 1987, so a little more than a week later, Jay's partially covered body was found in a rural area in Snohomish County. He had sustained blood, blunt force trauma to the head and was strangled to death with a dog collar and twine. The killer also shoved a pack of cigarettes down his throat. Uh, investi- investigators collected DNA from the van and from Tanya's body. In 2018, investigators tested the DNA using genetic genealogy, an up-and-coming science at the time that was still relatively new. And this is the testing that was made famous with the ultimate capture of Golden State Killer Joseph D'Angelo that same year. It helped law enforcement create suspect profiles through familial, familial DNA links developed using genetic genealogy databases. Talbot was then identified as a possible source. Investigators talked to him and collected a coffee cup he had discarded. Ultimately, that tied him to the murders. Talbot was a construction worker and a truck driver who lived near where Jay Cook's body was found. Uh, He was arrested at a job site in May 2018, and he was sentenced to life in prison. Monday's decision to overturn the murder convictions came as a shock to the prosecutors, according to KOMO News. Uh, we're disappointed as an office, to say the least, and I'm sure the family is similar, similarly disappointed, said Snohomish County Prosecuting Attorney Adam Cornell. The fact that the trial court did not dismiss that juror for cause impacted Mr. Talbot's right to a fair trial, and here we are. Cornell said he plans to appeal to the state Supreme Court before a January 5th, 2022 deadline, according to the Seattle-based news outlet. Failing that, his office will retry Talbot. Um, and she ends, Jax ends the article with, this isn't over yet. We're going to fight for justice for these families. So that's sort of describing how they got there. Ultimately, the defense tried to get rid of the juror and could not. Right, and so I feel like... I don't feel like this is going to make a difference in the ending of the case. No. It and so I mean, while it is a complete waste, it. I mean, I guess they should overturn it. Uh, they really should have excused the juror to begin with. It. I find it hard to believe that someone who felt that they couldn't be impartial because they themselves might. Uh, it appears that she was a victim of something as well. That's how it sort of come off to me. And, you know, you don't really see somebody that's been victimized and doesn't feel like they can be impartial on a jury, like bullying everybody into finding the guy guilty, right? I mean, they just sit there quietly and go along with what's happening. 
Right. That's my opinion. But, you know, they really should have um, went ahead and dismissed her. And it's weird that the court didn't. That's really weird. But like I said, very little goes into jury selection. And it's, that's one of the, it's one of the things that like this type of thing should never happen because the court should like actively be considering all of this as they're going into murder trials. Right. I mean, this was a crime that happened in 1987 and it was already, let's see after it was, he was arrested in 2018. I'm not sure when the trial was. It would have been after that. So you're talking at least 30 years have passed. Right, and all that time. And so, you know, what's one more juror dismissal and to get another juror on, right? Yeah, and depending on where you are, the the local rules for what types of challenges you get, they can vary. So the defense may have run out of challenges at this point, or this may have been one they felt like the juror could be rehabilitated for or rehabilitated for some reason or another. But it turns out that the appeals court currently doesn't agree with them. And the Supreme Court may overturn that. Um, what ultimately, do you think I don't the think they will. That would be. Uh, they could overturn it from the perspective that it doesn't change the outcome of the case. That it that just the one juror wouldn't it wouldn't be enough. Yeah, I mean, so the argument is that she maybe couldn't be objective enough, but you've got you still got multiple other people there sitting that could still potentially change the outcome of the trial. I I think ultimately. Here's what I think will happen. I think they'll go back to him and they'll offer him a plea deal. And it'll still be for, you know, forever in prison, basically. But it'll have less, uh, you know. Well, I don't know if you, uh, in fact, I've looked into so many cases. I'm not entirely certain that I have the right one in mind. I'm pretty sure I do, though. I don't, I believe that he maintained his innocence, even with the, um, the, the key was that the DNA wasn't only found on her body, but it was also found um, in the van. Right. And because of those two things, um, you know, it, the, the, it was presumed that it had to be the killer because if he, she had just hooked up with some guy, like why was his DNA in the van as well? Right. It like at, at her boyfriend's body. Um, but anyway, it, he, he had an interesting approach. Like this is that case, but his thing. So I watched the sentencing. I want to say that it was two years ago. I know I saw it. Like I saw a video of it when he did it. Um, but I, so here's a quote that I found while we're like looking at this. He said that when he was growing up, that he was not a violent person because he had grown up in a violent household. And this is what he says. The level of violence in this crime is something I can't even comprehend. I've gone all my life as a very passive person. I don't ever raise my hands towards anyone and I've never even got angry, but police interviews with his family. Um, and this comes by way of uh, Canadian broadcast and the fifth estate. There was information obtained by the fifth estate through access to uh, public record or FOIA requests and public record requests, they painted a different portrait of him. Um, the What the family basically says is his youngest sister, Melina Grail, told them that Bill had a lot of anger issues. Uh, he had kicked her with his boots on, um, and at one point she called the police. Um, and her opinion of him was that he felt like life owed him something. 
there was one incident uh, where they got into a pushing incident in Woodenville, Washington, between uh, William Talbot II and William Talbot I. And William Talbot I was uh, disabled from a motorcycle accident. And the police were called to their homes multiple times when he was young. Uh, he apparently threatened to run his father over as soon as he got his driver's license. And this is what his father told the police. He was going to show me that when he was 16, he was going to run me over. So I said, well, then you're not going to get your driver's license so you can get it yourself. Uh, his older sister or other sister, excuse me, I don't know if she's older or not. Inga Roth told police that she suffered very serious injuries at the hands of William Talbot II. Uh, he beat me up, broke my tailbone, and I had to go to the hospital. There were incidents where he uh, broke down doors, smashed holes in walls. You know, so it sounds like they lived in different worlds. Yeah, they even they said that he drowned a family pet in the well. Well, he said he was really passive, and like everybody else was like, "No, he's not." <laughs> I mean, can just see things kind of, differently, but Jesus, well, not that differently. Well, I was going to say, like, that's just to sum it up, because if you have, like, one person remembering it differently, that's one thing. But, like, it sounds like all of his siblings were not remembering him as being a passive person and what they were saying. Everything in the case made sense. The DNA, um, the guy was never on anybody's radar for the two murders. And... Um, the fact that, you know, they found the DNA and he did have an, a, def- a defense, which was that his DNA got there in a way that didn't make him the murderer, whatever it was. Right. And, you know, it just, I didn't buy it. And the fact that, uh, cause it seems to me like if what he had said was true, he would have come forward at the time of the crime. Like, if he had been hanging out with them or whatever, and he was an innocent Or he would have at least ended up on the radar somehow, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, it. so there's a lot that goes into that, but I have, like, a lot of confidence. I'm not even sure why the prosecutor wants to appeal the decision to the Supreme Court. I actually do agree that the juror should have been uh, dismissed. And that they should have gotten a different juror that answered the questions in a way that fit both sides. Now, it seems to me like the court would have had a reason for not allowing the juror to be dismissed. Like, perhaps they had already used all of their dismissals or however they, whatever the rules are. And so... It would, I guess it would be up to the court to uh, the Supreme Court on appeal to decide, like, if they were all operating within the bounds of whatever was required. But it to me, it just seems like a waste to appeal it again. But perhaps they will. But I, I have confidence in him getting reconvicted. This is this seems very technical to me as far as appeals go. This is a thing that like should have been handled. This is a technicality. Yeah, it really is a technicality. Um, you know, and, I never realized how much I didn't know what that meant. Until you start seeing cases like this? Well, until I really started realizing when cases are overturned on a technicality, that means like that has nothing to do with guilt or innocence. It's how the lawyers the process. practice the law or the judge 
made decisions, that's what it's being turned over on. It's yeah. kind of scary. <laughs> so this was one of the first cases I looked at, and I they made it really clear in how they covered it so that I could understand what genetic genealogy, genetic genealogy or familial matches meant. So in 2018, the police put the DNA profile of the unknown killer of Tanya and Jay into a public family tree database. The DNA got a match when uh, with two other people who added their DNA into the database, and they were the killer's cousins from two different branches of his family. Uh, Cece Moore, who you, you send me stuff about her all the time, she researched the family trees and traced the two cousins' families to see where they merged together in a marriage. And that marriage happened between William Earl Talbot the first or senior and Patricia Peters, they had four children among them. There was only one son and that was William Earl Talbot. The second anyways, this one was, it was pretty interesting overall uh, that this had happened, but this, this is news for December of 2021. Like it's just basically happened that I was really disappointed when I saw that. And I, I do feel like the heading of that particular article about it is going to lead a lot of people to think that the, there was something wrong with the genetic genealogy evidence, and that's just not the case. The evidence was fine. I don't even think it was disputed. So It was just know. sort of like, yeah, it's mine, but there's a reason. That was the take. Right. If I recall correctly, in sort of like hindsight, I believe, you know, the prosecutor or somebody uh, was, maybe it was the lab tech. Like they, they gave an interview about like if they were nervous about presenting that sort of evidence and they were, and they didn't know like how it was going to be received. Because again, this is a situation where you've got the sample that you're making a profile out of the sample. So it's not like they matched it to a person to begin with, right? They took what they had at the scene and they made what the person's DNA would be like. Then they traced it based on uh, publicly available genetic profiles that um, had connections to it. So a certain number of segments matched it. And so, you know, th that's all new. Like it's, it's a really, it's, it's the concept that I feel like criminals... Uh, violent criminals that perhaps left their DNA behind, like they never even fathomed that that would be a thing, right? Right. They, they never could have dreamt that, you know, without a direct match, like how do they do it? And then suddenly, you know, forensic genealogy happens and it scares the crap out of everybody that has, you know, committed a violent crime. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because I don't think this case could be any more removed from the case we're covering for today if we were to, like, try and make it more removed. It's geographically removed. The type of crime is removed. Uh, this one is uh, a crazy one. Had you ever read about this before, by the way? No. I'd never heard about it at all. I, I had heard of it in a song, but I didn't know what it was. This is, like sort of a, a crazy case. It's a very old case. So this case at this point is 108 years old or will be 108 years old this Christmas Eve. And 
how I came across this, I was looking for uh, different Christmas cases to cover this sort of 12 cases of Christmas thing that you had mentioned doing. And with these cases, I am trying to keep them fairly succinct since we're doing 12 of them. So people aren't listening to 50 hours of us talk over the holidays. But I do know that people have a lot of extra time over the holidays. And sometimes they want to listen to true crime podcasts. So um, I don't really fault them for that. And I wanted them that my thing this year of doing something special is really doing the 12 cases. This one is called the 1913 Massacre. Some people may know it as the Italian Hall disaster. The background on this case is that it was on December 24th of 1913. The people that are involved is the Calumet and Hecla mining company, CNH. They were the single largest copper mining company uh, in the area of Northwest Michigan's uh, peninsula. One of the longest strikes in the Copper Country took place in 1913 included all of their mines. The Western Federation of Miners had first established a, a local union in the area five years earlier in 1908, but it wasn't until 1913 that they had a large enough local membership to effectively strike. At the time, there were believed to be 15,000 men working in the mines um, on this peninsula, which is the, the Kiwinaw. I don't know. How do you say that? K-E-W-E-E-N-A. I think Kowena is right. It's the upper uh, peninsula. If you look at uh, Michigan on a map, okay, it's that upper uh, pen- peninsula kind of sticking off. <laughs> so 9,000 of the uh, Western Federation of Miners were members of that 15,000, that group of 15,000 people. The membership voted in favor of demanding union recognition from management and asking for a conference with the employers to adjust wages, hours, and working conditions in Michigan's Copper District. The membership also voted to declare a strike if the management refused to grant a conference or concessions. After the vote was held, The WFM sent letters to the mines demanding the conference. The mine managers refused the request, and the strike was called on July 23rd of 1913. The strike was not over until April of 1914. Uh, The mines and the miners were still at a standoff on Christmas of 1913. And as of December 24th, that would have made the strike five years old. On Christmas Eve, many of the striking miners and their families had gathered for a holiday party that was sponsored by the WFM's Ladies Auxiliary. The party was held on the second floor of Calumet's Italian Hall. There was a steep stairway that was the only path to the second floor. Um, And there was a poorly marked fire escape on one side of the building and ladders down the back side. But you could only reach the ladders and the fire escape by climbing through windows. They've got all of these people attending a party, basically. Now, I uh, just want to interject here. I'm not sure. um, Did you end up seeing the picture of the the doorway and the the fire case that they're talking about right here? I did. Did you? Okay. Yes, I did. But um, what I was going to say is, I didn't completely understand um, what was being said there just from the wording. And so basically, uh, if you can imagine 
sort of opening doors and there being like a very small foyer. Like, and when I say small, I mean like literally uh, the size of a couple of steps, right? But it's flat. And then basically going straight up a stairwell. Okay. And so I just thought that's kind of important to understand. And I don't know, maybe other people have better imaginations than I do, but I couldn't really picture it based on that. So. Oh, okay. That makes sense. I mean, I had, I had a little bit of trouble. Um, I saw the picture, but I had a little bit of trouble understanding the events as they happened, which, um, so you've got between four and 500 people in this room. And for some reason, someone yelled fire and there was no fire. However, uh, everyone in the room or at least a large percentage of the people who are in the room panicked and they rushed the stairs and they created a stampede in the ensuing stampede. 73 people get killed. And uh, to date, there's been much debate about who cried fire or why Uh, this is, like I said, I heard this in a song, which was by Woody Guthrie. The line in the song suggests that fire was called out by an anti-union ally of the mine management to disrupt the party and, and to get everyone out of the building. Um, well, actually, um, the thought I think that the the thought was so. The reason I described the stairs is because so you've got this tiny little foyer and a straight up staircase and. What happened was, as everybody was running down the stairs, they couldn't get the outer doors open. And so it was like they all piled up in that On tiny top of foyer. Each other. Yep. And they couldn't go back up the stairs, nor could they go out the door. And so it was really a horrible thing. And I've read several different sort of, they said that somebody, after yelling fire, had actually somehow barricaded the doors so they couldn't be opened. Now, I saw some pictures that led me to believe that uh, there were two sets of doors there, and one and the first set of doors would have had to have been opened inwards. Right. But then I thought I saw where that might have been discredited. But I, like I said, I saw a picture, so it seemed to me like that's probably what was really there. So basically what would happen is as everybody got down there and they were packed in that tiny little foyer area, they wouldn't be able to step back enough to open those doors. Right. They would just start stacking against it. Correct. And there's no, and there was nothing they could do. So, so there was one set of doors that opened inwards and then the outer set of doors that would have opened outwards, but they couldn't get to those doors. But it, I honestly, when I was reading about it, I felt like it was probably like a prank. Yeah, I think so too. And it's so, so sad because uh, I'm pretty sure, or or an accident, like somebody thought they saw a fire maybe. Now, you know, there wasn't a fire at all. Um, it was just a, like I said, a very well, I mean, a very not well thought out prank or an accident, but uh, because of the looming sort of tension between all the, because all these workers basically had been out of work for five months because of the strike. And so 
a lot of, I know I read that a lot of the families were sort of depending on the ladies auxiliary, like in the presents the children were getting, that was like the only present they were going to get that year because their parents hadn't been working because of the strike. Right. And so they had all come out to socialize and they were there. And I, the, based on the number of people, it seems like we're involved as far as the strike and the mining and all of that. I mean, they, they didn't really do a whole lot to only take out 73 people. Like, and for, 50, 59 of those people were children. I just want to point that out. And like, I just, I don't buy the, that a company, anybody in a company would, I mean, unless they're part of the mob, I guess, like would use that kind of strategy against like this huge force of like 9,000 members. Like what did 59 children being killed do or 73 total, right? It was 59 children and however many 73 minus 59 is adults. 14, 14 adults. 14 adults. And, you know, we're not allowed to do math on the show. <laughs> there was there was several accounts of stories that happened and like for example there was a woman who she had her little baby with her and she was with her husband and she realized she was going to die because of I mean it happened so fast but she held her little baby up above her head and the baby survived but she was she was killed just from being crushed, basically. Yeah, and it, it was very difficult to even investigate this. I don't know. Have you seen the procession pictures? It's I think so they were. Sad. Yeah, there's so many uh, caskets that are going to be buried. It's very, very sad. And think about um, 59 children dying. Yeah, it's, and so that was just the first factor that made it a very difficult investigation because you've got 59 children dying, 14 adults. Uh, but there, there have been several investigations after the fact, excuse me, there were several investigations into this disaster, into the aftermath of this disaster. But they had a lot of witnesses who did not speak English, who were forced to answer questions in English at the coroner's inquest. And because of the way the inquest went most of the witnesses were not really asked follow-up questions beyond the basics of were you there what did you see because he couldn't get any answers out of them and it appears that many of the people who the coroner ended up calling to testify they hadn't actually seen what had happened but after three days the coroner he issued a ruling but did not give a cause of death so a subcommittee of the u.s house of representatives uh they came to investigate the strike in early 1914, and they took sworn testimony there as well. They took testimony from witnesses for a full day on March 7th, 1914. 20 witnesses testified under oath and were offered interpreter, interpreters. Eight witnesses swore that the man who first raised the cry of fire was wearing a button on his coat for Citizens Alliance, Citizens Alliance, which is an organization that at the time was opposing trade unions and strikes. A common story that you related was the story of the the doors opening inward into the foyer. And basically, when the fleeing party goers reached the bottom of the stairs and pressed against the doors, it prevented them from opening. And that caused most of the people that were smaller and at the forefront of that to be crushed. That accounted for why so many children died. 
But I did see uh, photos of the doors suggesting that there was a double set of doors and that people were probably uh, not even close to the outside, if that makes sense. It's like they were stuck in the foyer. They weren't even getting into the mudroom, so to speak. There's a book about this. Uh, Stephen Leto, he wrote a book called Death's Door, The Truth Behind uh, Michigan's Largest Mass Murder. The coroner's inquest, according to Stephen's book, According to Steve's book, um, doesn't mention the doors as being a cause of all this. Uh, and in the 1914 subcommittee hearing and all of the newspaper articles and stories of this time, they do not mention the doors as being uh, an issue here. That may be an oversight, or it may just be that the vestibule and the uh, the landing was was not really considered. And it may be that people didn't see it because they were pushing the doors open from the outside at the end of all this. And they didn't realize like, even though they're going into the sea of bodies, they didn't realize it was a factor. Right. And that's what I was curious about because, uh, like was described earlier talking about how like the only doors were those doors and the fire escape was, you have to go through windows basically. And so it was just those doors. And so somebody was able to open those doors, right? Yeah. Uh, after it all calmed down, I guess. But it, so you're right. They probably didn't even consider it to be a factor, but it seems like based on sort of what seems like there could have been a lot of miscommunication happening here, but it, it, okay, so the question would be, when they got to the bottom, if the doors didn't open inward, well, what would have stopped the doors from being opened, right? right. And so the answer to that would be that someone had barricaded them, right? Yeah. And then they, like, what, waited five minutes and came back by and unbarricaded them? I... You know, so this is one of those cases where if you want to believe that it's a conspiracy to shut down part of the strike, pretty much anything is on the table as far as that happening. Like if you believe that there was a guy there that was essentially on the side of the mines and the mine management and and the company and CNH, if there was a representative there who was basically – uh, a strike breaker or like being used as an operative in this, anything is possible. I tend to lean more on the side of this is a tragedy that happened in the middle of it all. And I, and I really think that uh, you probably don't have a guy. I mean, clearly someone yelling fire in a crowded room, but I don't think that guy is necessarily citizens Alliance. Although there's a lot of people that believe that that happened. Not much is made of it. Right. And I just, I feel like, I mean, you have to sort of admit it, it's so tragic and without it being so tragic, it would almost be stupid. Right. Yeah. And that makes, you know, stories like these really hard. And I think that the dramatic sort of like giving it something more than just like something stupid that occurred that killed all these kids, like it makes people feel better. Yeah, I think it does to some degree. And uh, so I just have a lot of trouble sort of tracing like how anybody could have even pulled that off if they'd wanted to. And then having pulled it off, like what did it actually accomplish? Because it doesn't seem like very much. It just took a lot of children away. And that just doesn't like what's the point of that? Well, 
when I when I went through reading this, there's still a lot. It, it's interesting to me when something is this old and it's really not settled in any way. There are a lot of people who believe there were not inward uh, uh, inward opening doors. And I noticed when I was sort of skimming through the wiki and some of the, like NPR has a piece on this. Um, there are several things that you can read where you can read about the Italian hall disaster. And I noticed that uh, one of the lines in there, I, I, and I apologize, I don't know exactly where this came from. I think it was from the NPR piece and it may also be in Wikipedia. But the Italian hall was demolished in October of 1984. The archway remains and there is a state historical marker here from 1987. The site is a park that's maintained as a national historic park. But the marker incorrectly states that the tragedy was partly caused by inward open, opening doors. And I bounced through several references to that being an incorrect cause. And I did not... I think they're playing semantics. I think they're saying the coroner didn't say that, so that's not accurate. Well, um, the picture that I saw, the only thing I can think of is uh, the picture I saw, unless somebody doctored it for whatever reason, which it didn't look doctored. It looked like an old photograph um, that was you know, scanned in. But to me, it looked like the doors at least opened inwards. That doesn't mean that they wouldn't have opened outwards as well, like sort of, a door that went both ways. Um, but, and so with that in mind, um, you know, I, I don't know what the case is, but it could be possible that everybody was so panicked and smushed up against the doors that they just couldn't get the doors open, even if they did go outwards. Yeah. There's so, uh, I, this makes me always makes me think of, um, like, I, what I picture is nightclubs, have you ever seen like the nightclub disasters? There's several of them. There's like several terrible nightclub disasters. Yeah, um, that's uh, usually they're fires. Yeah, yeah. Th- that's what I was about to say. It's the fires that always make me go, well, you know, uh, that's awful. There, there's a 1942 fire that is considered to be the deadliest club fire in history. It's from it's called the Coconut Grove Fire. It was in Boston. Uh, 500 people died. Well, well, I think. I think it's like four something, but like 500 people ultimately died from that. And whenever I hear something like that, I'm always like, geez, you know, like how could this be presented, prevented? And, you know, we don't hear a lot about that many hundreds of people dying today. Now, right? right. Well, and you know, I, um, I don't actually go out that much anymore, but uh, I was always keenly aware of, like when I would go places, um, I would always know where my closest exit was, and I'm not really sure what that was from. But well, I don't, I don't know. But if I mean, I'm sure you know. But my husband played a lot of shows when we were younger, and oh, so yeah. we were constantly in these like dive bar clubs, and so. I was, and I think around that time, um, and I can't remember exactly, but I believe there was a fire maybe in Rhode Island. That yeah, that's that, that's the one I was thinking of. That's the sta- uh, station, maybe. I can't remember exactly. Great what I do, was playing. I remember that um, you know it was some pyrotechnics on the stage. I believe yeah. that caused the fire, and so I was always 
I don't know when that happened. I'm guessing I was probably 18 or 19 when that happened. And I would just had it on the forefront of my mind because I thought about how horrific it was. And so I always had my eye out on the nearest exit <laughs> just in case. And I never had anything happen. Um, but it, you know, it stuck with me that you never want to be somewhere where all of a sudden you can't get out if you want to. Yeah, I, you know, this is one of those stories that like, but for the mystery of it all, it either falls on the side of true crime or just disaster. Right. And uh, actually, the reason I was, uh, I, I didn't mind covering it anyway, but uh, I don't really see it as true crime. However, I do feel like it's worth remembering, you know, of course, the 59 children, but all 73 people who lost their lives during this tragic event. I mean, it, it really is tragic, and there's nothing wrong with remembering them. No, not at all. And uh, there was some crime that came out of it. The 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 union president was a guy named Charles Moyer, and he had publicized the accusation that it was a Citizens Alliance member where like of someone wearing a Citizens Alliance button who yelled fire and he refused to retract it. He was okay, he was part of this relief committee for the WFM and there was a relief committee that was also made up of the Citizens Alliance members. They collected $25,000 for the aid of the families affected by the disaster, but the families refused to accept the committee's money saying that the union had promised them aid. Uh, the New York Times reported that Alliance members who served on the relief committee learned that Moyer had barred the family, as he, he was the union president, from taking any of the funds during the strike. So the committee members visited Moyer at his hotel in uh, nearby Hancock, Michigan. They shot and kidnapped him. Then they placed him on a train with instructions to leave Michigan and never return. Uh, he went to Chicago, he got medical attention, and he held a press conference where he displayed the gunshot wound and promised to return to Michigan to continue the union work. I thought that was an interesting piece of true crime. Uh, he died so in weird. June 1929. So and it wasn't because of this. I was going to say, like, I'm not even entirely sure I understand what's happening there. Like, they, just... they, they, They've made a conspiracy out of it. Just all of it, right? Yeah. And it really was just a tragedy. It really is. It is a terrible tragedy, but I think it's a tragedy. I don't think it's as much true crime as uh, as it is just a, a disaster that could have probably been prevented but wasn't. Thank you for joining us. We are sponsored by LabratiCreations.com. You can check them out at LabratiCreations.com, and you can still use the code CRIMEXS for a fun pop pet portrait of your own pet. You can also reach us on Twitter, Instagram, at TrueCrimeXS, or you can give us a call if you know anything about any of the cases that we're talking about at 252-365-5593. You can also reach us at Gmail at TrueCrimeXS at gmail.com, and you can check out our website at www.TrueCrimeXS.com. We'll see you next time.
first came here, I used to spend a lot of time with Woody Guthrie. That February, last February. Woody's songs. I'll sing a couple more. This is one. It's one of them, group of two. Take a trip with me in 1913. Okay, Michigan in the copper country. I'll take you to a place called Italian Hall. Where the miners are having a big Christmas ball. Singing and dancing, it's heard everywhere. I'll let you shake hands with the people you see and watch the kids dance around the big Christmas tree. They're singing, dancing, and songs in the air. The spirit of Christmas is there everywhere Before you know you're friends with us all And you're dancing Around and around in the hall You ask about working, you ask about They'll tell you they make less than a dollar a day Just working their copper claims, risking their lives So it's fun to spend Christmas with the children wives A little girl sits by the Christmas tree lights Vienna, she gotta keep quiet Here all it's fun you would not realize That the copper boss thug in a milling outside The copper thugs thug stuck their heads in the door There's a fire. The lady she hollered, There's no such a thing. Keep on with you, party. There's no such thing. A few 
It's just scabs and thugs fooling you A man grabbed his daughter and carried her down But the thugs held the door and they could not get out And then others followed Everybody remained on the floor The scabs and the thugs They still laughed at their joke And the children Were smothered on the stairs By the door Such a terrible sight I never did see Carried our children back up to their tree. The scabs and the thugs, they still laughed at their spree. And the children died at 73. The piano. Parents they weep and the miners 